Welcome to the One and O podcast, hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner. The One and O podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. Today on episode seven of the One and O podcast, we will talk about the Red River shootout, everything that went wrong for Texas in the Cotton Bowl against Oklahoma, and what the Longhorns need to do in order to recover from that loss. We'll also talk a little bit about Big 12 hoops as some preseason honors were announced today, give our predictions for Texas' next matchup at Kansas, and finally, as always, we'll end with our lock of the week. But before that, Brad, we have a couple people who make this show possible. Absolutely, absolutely. Got to give some love to our two sponsors. That would be Audiovisual Consultations, a.k.a. AV Consultations. You can find them at avconsultations.com or by calling 512-255-8678. That is the number to call to get the home TV surround sound setup of your dreams. The indoor or outdoor setup you've always wanted, AV Consultations can make it happen for you. And we're also sponsored by Altstadt Beer. It is German beer made here in Central Texas and the best beer that you can find in Central Texas. Check out the beer and the brewery itself. Go to their website, altstatbeer.com. For more information, it is Altstadt Beer. No impurities, no regrets. So you've been living here for about, what, seven years or so seven now? Seven years. So let's, you know, I'm from Houston. You're from Dallas. I've got the Texans. you got the Cowboys. We both went to UT. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of Austin transplants. We've been here long enough to where when people ask where we're from, we can say, yeah, I'm from Austin. You think so? I, I Are we are, eligible to say that? I think it depends on which Austinite you ask. Yeah, like how long true. you have to have lived here to consider yourself an actual Austinite? Because I'm not so sure if we're allowed to call ourselves Austinites yet. I don't. I don't know if I've got the gold card or the silver card, <laughs> but I've got some Is it sort like of Costco card. or Sam's Club. You got to have an exclusive membership card to uh, to get in. Is you gotta, that what we need? You got to build up, build your credit yep. with 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 the city of Austin. But if you're living in Austin, you're you might be like Brad or I. You're either a Houston fan or a Cowboys fan, while also being a Longhorns fan. And maybe for some listeners out there, you're interested in high school football and you're you're interested in probably the biggest matchup in the city of Austin in, in the high school football landscape. No offense to the Taco Shack Bowl, but Westlake and Lake Travis are what steals the, the show every year. So if you're a Cowboys fan who went to UT, who also went to Westlake, not a very good football <laughs> weekend for you. If you're a Cowboys fan who went to UT, who went to Lake Travis. Yeah, you're you're probably reveling in the win in the Battle of the Lakes, but unfortunately Texas commit and Lake Travis quarterback Hudson Card goes down for the rest of the year. The only you know saving grace, I guess, was Deshaun Watson and what they did up in Kansas City against probably the toughest home atmosphere in the NFL and went in there and, and won a game, stole a game, and what might have been the best regular season win in franchise history. Yeah, no doubt. That was a huge win for Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans. I think arguably the best win in Bill O'Brien's tenure, if not beyond to the entire history of the Texans like you talked about. But you're right, for everybody else in this state, and I guess it depends on what high school team you root for, right? Half the high school teams that played on Friday won, the Mm -hmm. other half lost. But, uh, yeah, not a great football weekend in the state of Texas. You support the Longhorns. You support the Aggies. You support Texas Tech. Now, if you're a Baylor fan, thanks to the Big 12 refs, you were able to escape and uh, remain undefeated. But you're right. Cowboys fans on Sunday took it on the chin by the New York Jets. It was a disappointing football weekend for a lot of football fans in the great state of Texas. But I will notice that, you know, I I was driving uh, back from Dallas for most of the Texans game, so I picked it up on the radio. Um, And it's, I can still pick up football on the radio. I'm glad I can still visualize that in my head. But the watch, I was able to get back and watch a good amount of the Jets and Cowboys game. And while I am kind of on the sidelines here, that's A, an inexcusable loss. But at the same time, the Jets looked a lot different with a quarterback like Sam Darnold leading the way, and that's that may have been what caught the Cowboys by surprise. It shouldn't have, and look, you could try to, and I think relatively successfully, come up with some sort of way to rationalize that loss if you're a Cowboys fan. The Cowboys were playing without their two starting tackles, playing without two of their top three wide receivers once Amari Cooper got hurt on the first drive. You're on the road. You're playing a team that shouldn't have been 0-4. Right, I mean, if Sam Darnold plays all four games, the Jets are probably 2-2. Two and two. They had some playoff aspirations before the year. There were a lot of people, 
not picking them to beat the Patriots in the AFC East, but picking the Jets to maybe win a wild card spot with Le'Veon Bell, with Sam Darnold in year two, some of the weapons on that defense, Quinton Williams, of course, who they drafted early on, Jamal Adams is a hell of a player. You could try to tell yourself that it wasn't a terrible loss for the Cowboys, but you would be wrong. They needed this one, considering how bad they looked in the previous two weeks, considering they've got a big game against the Eagles coming up this Sunday night, and considering that eight of the final ten Cowboys opponents are either 500 or better, this is one that you absolutely had to have. And hey, if there's five more minutes on the clock, the Cowboys probably win the football game. They just ran out of time for their comeback, but that's no excuses for why they went down 21-3, to and then we're trailing 21-6 to to that football team at halftime. That's two weeks in a row now we've seen sluggish starts out of the gates for the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, whatever, whatever Adam Gase had in his pregame meal or pregame serving, I don't know what he, what he does before games, was enough to get the Jets rolling and beat the Cowboys in a game that they did not expect to be beaten. But that was not the uh, that was the finale, I guess, of a, of a tough football weekend. You're trying weekend. to avoid talking about this game, man. We can't avoid it for much longer. I know. It, so, I mean, 34-27, uh, somehow the final score was just a one-possession margin. Uh, Vegas, as it seems to do in this game, pretty often gets it wrong again. But if you were just watching the game – uh, you would have thought, oh man, Vegas was well. They were right. Like this is an OU team that had everything. It had its way with Texas, and it, and it did. And it's just that the scoreboard, the final score, kind of lies a little bit about how the game went. Texas walked in there, and basically from the start was getting beat down, and that is not only alarming when you're playing your your biggest rival, your measuring stick game. But it's just alarming in comparison to you know however many games it's been in under the Tom Herman tenure, two and two and a half seasons. That was something completely out of character for the Longhorns in a game where you want to be in character more than any other. Yeah, Joe. If you would have asked me last week or any time before kickoff on Saturday, you would have asked me, "All right, BK, are you cool with Oklahoma having ten points at halftime? Are you cool with Oklahoma having only twenty points at the end of the third quarter?" I would have laughed and said, you're kidding me. You're really going to give me that offer? You're telling me there's a chance that Texas can hold that offense with Jalen Hurts to 10 points at halftime and 20 points after three quarters? Absolutely. Sign me up every day and twice on Sundays. And I would have also told you that Texas was probably up by two touchdowns Mm -hmm. going into the fourth quarter. That was not the case. You can definitely point fingers to the defense, and we will. Because as this game progressed, the defense fell apart. And missed tackles was a huge issue. Guys did not keep their contain or set the edge against Jalen Hurts. The dual-threat quarterback strikes again against a Todd Orlando defense. The defense is not without blame in this game. There's no doubt about that. And the special teams had its issues as well. We'll get into those a little bit later. But the offense, man. I mean, you cannot expect to put up three points and a half against any team but especially a top-five team like Oklahoma, and expect to have a chance to win this football game. I know Texas turned some things on offensively in the second half. They put up 24 points there. But just like the Cowboys, they get off to a sluggish start, and they did not make nearly enough adjustments until it was way too late in this game. And you're right, Joe, it's a miracle this game was was even close. It never really felt like Texas had a chance to win this football game. Somehow, some way, they did. It was a one-possession game for the majority of this contest. But offensively, you cannot put up three points against that defense and a team that's as good as Oklahoma and expect to have a legitimate shot to win. Right. It was less than 100 yards, I think, in the in the first half. Uh, most of them came on that final field goal drive that was also not run with any sense of urgency once whatsoever. Um and it, you got There is credit to be given to Alex Grinch, Parnell Motley, Trey Brown, Deller and Turner, Turner Yale, uh, Bookie Radley Hiles was part of the OU defense last year that gave up 48 points in this game and gave up a bunch of points to Kansas and all that. And, you know, whoever else they gave up a lot of points to. Those same players under Alex Grinch have, at least in this game against Texas, played very effectively and, and shut down whatever Texas wanted to do. Same thing happened on the front. We talked a lot about how this game was going to be won in the trenches. And Oklahoma just straight kicked Texas' ass yeah. in both trenches. And you, I, I know you mentioned this about Texas talked a lot all week. I don't know if I agree with they talked all week. Obviously, 
uh, B.J. Foster said what he said about Jalen Hurts sliding, and Sam Cosme said they're they're not that impressive. I've I kind of found that as confidence, not so much crap talk. But even if you even no matter how you slice it, if you say it, you got to back it up. Yeah, and two guys who talked the most trash are two of the guys who got worked the most on Saturday. You're right, and you and I both picked Oklahoma to win this football game. But, man, I never saw a scenario in which they would dominate both lines of scrimmage like they did. With what we've seen from this Texas offensive line so far this year, you figured they had the advantage against OU's defensive front. And considering, I think all five starters for OU ended up playing on their offensive Mm -hmm. line, but considering they had two guys, both of their tackles were severely banged up, and we weren't sure until kickoff if they were going to go, you figured, okay, the Texas defensive line probably has the advantage there. The Longhorns... Got pushed around, mm-hmm. like you said. I mean, they got their ass handed to them at both lines of scrimmage. Nine sacks for Oklahoma. And they were able to get pressure without bringing extra blitzers. That is the most fascinating part. The Texas offensive line looked as though they had never seen a twist or a stunt in their life. And Sam Cosme was the guy talking trash. He didn't have that bad of a game. It was Zach Shackelford, the senior captain center, who was bad. Kerstetter, the right tackle. Junior Angelau, maybe you expect it from him, a first-year starter. I mean, those guys looked lost on Saturday. And the worst part, I don't know if it's a bad part or a good part, Joe. After the game, and on Monday during his press conference, Tom Herman said, OU's defensive line didn't do anything we hadn't seen on film. So how does that happen? Like, you were prepared for it. You had seen mm-hmm. it on film. You knew OU was going to twist and stunt the way that they did. How did they look so bad? It will always be a mystery to me, but they got pushed around by the Sooners, and that was shocking. I think the answer to that is they just got beat over and over and over again. I think what Oklahoma's defensive line was able to do with that front, with the three down linemen, two linebackers on the outside and one kind of in the middle, I think they called that a bear front, that put Texas's offensive line in a lot of one-on-one matchups. And throughout the course of the year, we've seen Sam Cosme, Derek Kerstetter, those guys handle one-on-one matchups against skilled pass rushers like guys like Kevin. We've seen even you know Zach Shackelford handle, I think Glenn Logan was his name for, for LSU or Brandon Fajeco, um, and, and do well in one-on-one matchups and communicate and pass things off. But that just went out the window. They lost one-on-one matchups over and over again. They didn't communicate and, and pass off, you know, hey – here comes a guy looping around the edge. They just didn't do all the stuff that had helped them become a, an offense that a lot of advanced analytics was really high on. They just didn't do those things throughout the course of the game. And you saw the passing game suffer, nine sacks. Not all of them, of course, are 100% on the offensive line. Mm-hmm. But some of them are. Yeah, Kenneth Murray running right by Junior Angulau slash running right through Parker Braun and – uh, Rashawn Johnson slash running through Sam Cosme, you know, yeah, those those are kind of on the offensive line. And so not only was the passing game affected, if you take away that 57-yard run from Rashawn Johnson, and I'm not a big if-you-take-away guy. I think sometimes that can be overblown and right. it's a way to cherry-pick. But that was really the only big explosive play Texas had all game. If you take away those yards, you have, you know, probably around – Less than you have less than seventy yards rushing, and I know a large part of that's because college is silly and deducts sack yardage from from the running game. Mm-hmm. But it's no matter how you slice it, Texas couldn't run the ball, they couldn't pass the ball, and a lot of that had to do with just the offensive line getting beat over and over and over. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, forty six plays into the game, Texas had twenty plays for zero or negative yards. Got that from Paul Wadlington of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. It was a total systematic offensive failure. And I will credit Alex Grinch a ton, the Oklahoma defensive coordinator. Boy, they better lock that dude up, or he might be getting some head coaching calls in the offseason in six weeks. I know he had the entire offseason, but six games, that Oklahoma defense looks a lot different than what we saw last year. That is a relatively formidable unit, and they've got some players, man. They really do. I know that defense gave up a ton last year, but they have eight starters back. Gallimore and Ronnie Perkins up the front are very good. Kenneth Murray was the preseason All-Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. They just needed some better coaching than what they were getting from Mike Stoops. Alex Grinch did that. They've got experience on that defense. And by the way, you know, I keep hearing that there's not a lot of talent there. 
Those are still four- and five-star recruits that they're getting on the defensive side of the football. They just needed to be coached up and developed a little bit better. They had experience and better coaching than what Texas had. You know, this Longhorn defense, and I know we'll, we'll stick to the offense, but this Longhorn defense is maybe the most inexperienced Texas defense in the last three decades when it comes to returning talent and returning starts from last year's team. You got to see that. Even though OU's defense was way worse than Texas's last year, there's experience. Those guys have played in games like this before. They were ready for the challenge on Saturday. I give Alex Grinch some serious credit. But you're right. I mean, whatever unit you look at for this offense, the offensive line was terrible. It starts up front with them. Sam Ellinger didn't have his best game. Some of the sacks definitely go on him. The running game. And I put a lot of this on the coaches. Just coaching ineptitude, not making enough adjustments early on. This is a very stubborn coaching staff. And they went in with a very vanilla game plan. You know, the first 15 plays that were very scripted. They tried to do a lot of the things that had worked for Texas this year and also worked for Texas against Oklahoma last year. But it was clear to me that the OU defense was very aggressive. They were not going to let those swing passes to Devin DuVernay pick up a lot of yards. They were attacking. They were flying to the football. And Texas just kept trying to go back to that stuff over and over again before making adjustments so I thought there was some serious coaching and aptitude not enough shots taken down the field I would have loved to see some more just straight line runs up the middle to see if your big boys could have gotten something going up front and by the time Texas finally made those adjustments it was too late so yeah we'll talk a lot about the ineptitude of the players there were drops by the wide receivers which makes it tough to continue to call deep shots because the receivers weren't catching it but man I just thought the offensive coaching staff was a little bit too stubborn, and they were too slow to make some adjustments uh, for things that really weren't working. Like, it was clear and obvious what they were trying from the jump was not working, and they didn't adjust until it was too late, in my opinion. A lot of what Texas does on offense has to do with trying to swing balls to the perimeter real quick and then run up the middle when, when you're trying to get those guys, those defensive guys, out on the perimeter or pass it over the top of those guys. And the way that Oklahoma defended the screen pass basically eliminated that eliminated that part of the game plan from being able to be used. It's credit to Alex Grinch, and you know when screen passes work, they're not impressive. Nobody cares. They're kind of like good umpires, not noticeable. Five yards, of, five yards of play is five yards of play, but it's not impressive. It's a screen pass. But when they're getting zero and one or negative one, right. then it becomes, oh, my God, why are we running screen passes, not aggressive, you know, all that stuff. And Oklahoma was able to completely take that out of the game plan. But one thing I did notice was that, you know, Brennan Radley-Hiles, number 44, their, their nickel, he only plays to the field. And what Texas would do was they started to do some things that they hadn't shown all year. They'd put two receivers on each side of the field. One was Cade Brewer as a tight end, but he was split out wide. And they tried to get Devin DuVernay in the slot on the boundary against the linebacker. Against that linebacker, Colin Johnson's not going to be able to hold up as well in the screen game yep. against that guy. And then you also have to put Devin DuVernay one-on-one. You hope you can make a miss. Tom Herman said they didn't make a miss. And then the, you have the safeties coming downhill, and they were coming downhill better than I have ever seen Oklahoma safeties do so on Saturday. So even the adjustments they did try weren't totally conducive to allowing that screen game to open up and open up everything else. It yeah, was they, to get why Devin, not fake one of those and then take a shot down the field to, they, the, to counteract their aggressiveness? The one time they tried, it was obvious that's what was happening, and, and Oklahoma was able to sniff it out. So instead of the screens that normally have three receivers to one side and two blockers and all that stuff, they were, weren't able to run that part of their offense because of their alignment, because of what they saw, but just because – it wasn't conducive to to, to to getting yards upfield. That took away a bunch from the rest of the passing game, and it obviously took away a good bit from the running game, especially when the OU defensive line and linebackers are having the day that they had. And some people just have an issue with that type of offense in general, the swing screen plays, sort of an extension of the running game. But that has worked for Texas all year long. And I don't have an issue with that being a part of the original game plan. Like, do with what got you here. You know, do what got you here. But it was clear that Oklahoma was selling out Mm -hmm. to prevent that. And Texas, for some reason, kept trying it over and over again. It's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again but expecting a different result. Texas finally opened some things up a little bit more in the second half, and they put up some points. They were able to get some drives going. I just, 
I don't understand why this coaching staff was so slow to change their initial game plan. They were a little bit too stubborn for my liking. And you need a schematic advantage against teams with like talent, Joe. This isn't 05 Texas where it doesn't really matter what you call. You're so confident that your guy is better than the guy lined up against you. These are evenly matched teams in terms of talent. You need a schematic advantage, and Texas didn't get that. And let me tell you, Joe, it's a little scary moving forward with Texas and Oklahoma because Oklahoma is your biggest rival, and they are your biggest roadblock to you winning conference championships. Oklahoma has a better offensive coach, and right now they've got a better defensive coach than Texas has right now. That does not bode very well for the future of this football team. Yeah, this is the measuring stick game, especially in the in the current landscape of the Big 12. Baylor is improving, but they are not conference championship winning like they were under Art Bryles. For some reason, TCU on offense can't get it going like they were able to not even 5 years ago. Tech is coming is is still trying to figure itself out. Same with basically every other school in this conference. So this was the measuring stick game. This is, you know, your in-conference big rival to see where exactly you stand with the elites of college football. And you, like you just mentioned, you got beat on the offensive, their offense versus your defense and their defense versus your offense. And, you know, Texas could rattle off a win against Kansas, win by 38, you know, beat Baylor by maybe a score or two possessions at Waco, that type of thing. But that's expected to go against Oklahoma and then to just get beat the way they did schematically with, you know, how seven coaches basically on the offensive side of the ball. Mm-hmm. That's it's it, that's what's most concerning about this game. Not so much the the, you know, failed game plan, but just the fact that you had a chance to show that you were right there and you learned that you're nowhere close to being right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, that's Alex Grinch's trademark right there. Not just at Oklahoma, but just all of his days as a defensive coordinator. His defenses play downhill, a lot of stunts and twists up front, and they will blitz safeties and linebackers to create those negative plays at the expense sometimes of some deep shots, of some misdirection, and Texas just had a very vanilla game plan, and they didn't do enough of that stuff to try to attack Oklahoma until it was a little bit too late. Uh, the wide receivers, man, that that to me, I mean, maybe outside of Devin Duvernay, that's been the most disappointing unit for this football team for me here in 2019. Obviously, Colin Johnson has missed a lot of time. He's missed half the season with injury. Uh, he came back and played pretty well. Six catches for 82 yards, but he did have a drop himself. Uh, Devin Duvernay, more of his problems on Saturday were in special teams than they were as an actual wide receiver, but Brandon Eagles had two drops on deep passes. Jake Smith had a drop down the field. Like Whenever Texas did try to take some shots, the receivers weren't making plays. They were perfectly throwing balls from Sam Ellinger And those are huge momentum-type plays. And Texas was starting so backed up against their own end zone so often, you need to convert plays like that. And the receivers, man, outside of Devin Duvernay, once again, it's kind of been an issue with those guys for me all year. And the fact that they weren't able to produce against Oklahoma and that secondary, which whatever you say about their defense, we knew the weak link was their secondary. That, to me, is pretty disappointing. Yeah, those plays you mentioned about to Brennan Eagles and to – to Jake Smith, those those really stand out because those were your opportunities. Your offensive line won on those plays. Uh, Sam Ellinger had time to throw, delivered passes that were – they hit both those guys in the hands. Both those plays, a receiver had a hand on the ball and couldn't bring it in. And one of them was from deep in your own end zone trying to create a momentum shift like you mentioned, and they just simply could not do it. So that's that's really disappointing to see that from a unit that you thought was supposed to be really good. Colin Johnson doing that, you know, and, and you have to hope that now that his hamstring issue is done, that he doesn't have a concussion issue. Yeah. We'll probably learn more about that, you know, today, Thursday, uh, when you're listening to this from Tom Herman's press conference. But, yeah, this was a, a unit we thought was supposed to be deep and supposed to be a place where Texas would separate itself from some of the other teams. And – like Texas' wide receivers, they really can't get that separation. <laughs> How would you grade Sam Ellinger's play on Saturday? I mean, 26 of 38 technically for 210 yards. Um, trying to find his rushing yards. Yeah, I mean, two rushing touchdowns, but obviously the rushing yards will be in the negative because of the nine sacks. 
you know, it didn't feel like this game was all on him. He wasn't getting a whole lot of help. The offensive line was struggling. The running game was pretty much non-existent. The receivers were dropping balls. How would you rate the quarterback's performance on Saturday? I think it borders right on uh, B minus C plus, probably closer to C plus. Like that's not that's that wasn't a performance that's going to lead you to victory, uh, but it shouldn't have been. It, it wasn't a performance that like you know, like freshman Sam, where you point and be like. Number 11 lost the game on that play. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was so much his individual play-by-play that that didn't allow Texas to get back into this game. But if you're a Heisman candidate, if you're this guy who with who who is competing to be the best quarterback in the conference, you kind of come to expect the spectacular at times. And and there wasn't any of that on on Saturday. So I don't think it was a it wasn't a, like I said a, a game you can point and say that guy lost us the game. Uh, but it just definitely wasn't a game. It wasn't his best this season by far. Yeah, he didn't get a whole lot of help from the coaching as well with the game plan, but yeah, offensive line, wide receiver drops, a lack of rushing game, and then just over time, I mean, when you're pressured as often as Sam was, your your skill's going to deteriorate a little bit. I don't care how good of a quarterback you are. I don't care if you're prime Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning. If you're getting hit 10, 15 times a game, your quality of play is going to suffer, and that sort of happened with Sam Ellinger. So I'm kind of with you on that grade. Uh, I didn't think he played his best game. I don't think there's any debate about that, but uh, he did not get a lot of help, man. I mean, it's still fascinating to me. you, you got to credit Oklahoma, and I do mean that. That isn't coach cliche. That defense looked a whole hell of a lot better. But, man, this offense, which came in as a top 15 total and scoring offense in college football, for them to have three points at halftime in a neutral site game against Oklahoma – I mean, that is, that is inexcusably bad. Kansas had seven last week against that Oklahoma defense. Texas could only put up three. Very disappointing. All right, Joe, let's uh, flip over to the Texas defense, shall we? Todd I Orlando guess. and the Texas defense. Look, they uh, your job is to not give up points. Right. And we knew going into this game that the Longhorns were going to give up yards. They're going up against the number one total offense in college football OU came into this game averaging 622 yards per game. They were basically averaging 10 yards per play. So we knew they were going to get theirs. The goal of the game is to not give up a lot of points. And for three quarters, Texas did a pretty good job of that. Once again, OU had 10 at halftime, 20 after the third quarter. Texas bent a lot, but they didn't really break. They created those two turnovers in the red zone. But then the fourth quarter, it all fell apart. The missed tackles started to show up really in the entire second half, but into the fourth quarter. Jalen Hurts had his way on the ground once again. And uh, overall, it feels like a pretty disappointing performance from Todd Orlando's defense once again. Yeah, it, it it really was. This was, I think, the first time this year that Oklahoma had been held under 40 points. Uh, kind of going back to what you said at the beginning of the show, if you told me that Texas held Oklahoma under 40 points, under 35 points, I would have thought, man, Texas might have pulled that game out. But they didn't. <laughs> they couldn't tackle. And there's a lot of other issues going on with the defense besides tackling. But if they had tackled better – those issues could have been covered up. Instead, both are incredibly glaring problems right now, and they, they fall at the feet of a guy who's getting paid $1.7 million a year right now. So, A, the, I understand Tom Herman trying to balance keeping a healthy program with encouraging tackling. I mean, when you're missing Jalen Green, you're missing Josh Thompson, missing Caden Stearns, uh, Anthony Cook gets banged up in a game, B.J. Foster still coming back from an injury – okay, I understand how you have to balance keeping all those guys healthy, keeping the guys who've replaced them, like Montrell Estelle and Chris Brown. Oh, yeah, he's out too now, keeping yep. those guys healthy. But, you know, you play tackle football. Uh, you have to do what is a part of the name of the game in order to win. And Tom Herman limiting that, he admitted it was a mistake. He owned it, but it was still obviously a mistake. And against an elite offense with guys like Jalen Hurts, who are putting up those ridiculous numbers, with Kennedy Brooks and Ramondre Stevenson, two pretty highly ranked running backs, with guys like C.D. Lamb, who probably had a career day uh, against the Texas secondary on Saturday. You just can't do that, and it, and that's a big reason as to why all those things showed up at the same time and resulted in 34 points for Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm not super harsh on Tom Herman for limiting – tackling and practice over the last few weeks I mean 
this defense missed a lot of tackles against LSU. Mm. That was the second week of the year when they had been working on tackling in all fall camp. So, I, I don't know. There's some sort of technique issues, and too many guys on this defense are going for the big hit, and they're not wrapping up. And they're missing tackles, number one, but they're also injuring themselves Mm -hmm. because of that. That's extremely disappointing, and it's not the first year. I mean, it's not just the Todd Orlando era. This is like a decade-long Texas problem where this team just struggles to tackle. And Tom Herman was asked about it on Monday, and he said, everything's fixable. It's 100% fixable. We'll fix it. But that stuff is not getting fixed, and Texas's inability to contain running quarterbacks is just not getting fixed during Todd Orlando's tenure. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I mean, Rod Babers, who hosts the broadcast on the Horn, Lifetime Longhorn, of course, he conservatively counted 21 missed tackles in this game. But those 21 missed tackles by Texas are only the instances in which the Longhorns got their hands on the Oklahoma ball carrier. So you think of the ridiculous C.D. Lamb touchdown, which one? The really ridiculous C.D. Lamb touchdown where there's that viral shot of five Longhorns standing right around him on the flea flicker play. There were only two missed tackles technically on that play because three of the Longhorns never got their hands on C.D. Lamb. So you've got 21 actual missed tackles, but the angles, again, are terrible. These guys are getting juked out of their shoes, and that's got to be a coaching thing, is it not? These guys just don't see him like they know how to break down and tackle as well as they need to. Now, Oklahoma's got some incredible athletes. CeeDee Lamb is a future first-round pick. That guy is one of the best wide receivers in the country. But, man, this is just becoming a big-time problem again for this defense, their inability to tackle. Also, the inability for the defensive front to set the edge or to contain. Once again, a dual-threat quarterback continues to kill Texas. Jalen Hurts just had his way. Where was the spy And I ask you this, Joe, I'm kind of talking in circles right now, trying to get four points at once, but the reason I'm doing this is I don't know the defensive identity of this football team. I don't know what the base defense is. We're through six games, and it feels like every week they have trotted out a different defense. What is the identity of Todd Orlando's defense in 2019? I get it, not a lot of talent to work with because of departures and because of all of the injuries, but... God, it almost feels like they're trying too many things instead of just going with one defense that would hopefully work against some of these teams. It, to me, it seems like the question you're asking, what is the, the identity of this defense? What do they do well? I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that may be kind of going on within the building right now. What what do we do well? And I understand that you know the, 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 def, the defensive line is always going to be a big issue in a three-down front or in a three-down front defense in a spread-passing league. Three guys, you know, in the NFL, when you've got eye formation and stuff like that, a three-down defense has two other linebackers on the other side of it. In the spread-passing league, where they have four wide receivers or, you know, four guys, five guys who can or are threats to catch the ball, okay, I understand having more athletes out there. But at the same time, if you're not going to put those athletes in a position to – be able to spy the quarterback or to be able to come down and set the edge. Joseph Osai, for athletic as he is, 15 yards off the ball, it's hard for him to set it. The edge is already gone by the yeah. time he wants to set it. Jay, Deshaun Jamison and Anthony Cook, for his pretty solid games that they had, I don't think there was anything super glaring about their performances, but they're still you know, less than 200-pound corners. Those guys can't set edges super effectively against offensive linemen no matter you know how much like a screaming missile they come down and play like so I think what I I don't think you're going to see too much of a departure from the three down line front I think that's just who Todd Orlando is and that's also who Tom Herman has said over and over the type of defense that he wants it puts more athletes on the field but you have to be able to put those athletes in the right spot and Joseph Osai, you know, covering slot receivers or slot tight ends doesn't seem like the right place to put him. I, 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 they have so much on Joseph Osai's plate to where it's like, why don't you use what this guy was really good at? Yeah, he's, he can have more roles than being just a hand down wide defensive end charged with setting the edge and rushing the passer. But mm-hmm. Oklahoma, they had a three down off, they, their defense was three down with, kind of a similar B-backer and two middle linebackers and a nickel, and it didn't look like they had much of an issue stopping the pass and stopping the run. I don't see why you don't put one of your best players uh, in a better position to make better plays. He can still do it with 
you wherever you throw him on the field, but why don't you put him in a spot to where you can do it more often? Yeah, I love Joseph Osai. I mean, maybe the MVP of this defense through six games this season. He doesn't need to be 20 yards down the field covering C.D. Lamb. Like, that's not where he needs to be, and I get that he's a versatile player, can be a Swiss Army knife, but you're right. I want him in positions to where he can be most successful. Uh, Anthony Cook, I was kind of impressed by the way he played. He's a pretty good tackler in a defense that is not filled with a whole lot of tacklers, but really outside of those two guys, man, everybody on this defense had rough goes. We felt pretty good about the Sean Jamison. He had a good game against West Virginia, those two interceptions, but he kind of got worked in coverage on Saturday and the defensive line. We talked about the wide receivers maybe being the most disappointing unit in 2019. The defensive line has to be in that conversation, too. I mean, you're, you're replacing all three starters from last year, but you figured you had enough talented pieces and enough depth up front to where you can make an impact. You had no sacks against West Virginia last week, no sacks this week. You're not staying disciplined. You're not keeping your edges when you're rushing, and you're going up against a banged-up offensive line from Oklahoma. That's the worst OU offensive line in probably a decade. That's a scary thought that, you know, what was supposed to be one of the strengths of this Texas team going up against their worst offensive line in a long time, and you can't get any pressure. That is scary, man. And once again, they 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 made some plays. The two takeaways. I mean, 34 points against Oklahoma. I would have figured that is going to win you the football game. But down the stretch, the missed tackles, the lack of contain, the lack of discipline in the second half when Texas finally got things going offensively, they needed the defense to come up with a, st- a stop, and they couldn't do it. It's like the LSU game, right? Texas had seven at halftime against LSU. Offense wasn't there in the first half. They needed to wake up. They did but the defense couldn't get off the field. Very similar to what happened against Oklahoma on Saturday. Yeah, all the all the issues that really plagued Texas in that game, I think was you could point to one very specific play very, very late in the game, and it was Kennedy Brooks's 42-yard run up the Oklahoma sideline, the far sideline, yeah, to is. where there's the image that you see from that sky cam behind the play camera is about six or seven Oklahoma blockers running over Brandon Jones. It was, and I know there was a couple other Texas guys there, but there's no one there to really make any issue of the play. It was Oklahoma's classic GT counter pull, and yes, there's misdirection with with Jalen Hurts and a, and a guy going taking a jet the other way, but there's like four or five, six Oklahoma guys and two or three Texas guys right there, and you know that's their bread and butter. And it just, not, there was no chance of it being stopped because of all the, the, the numbers mismatched there. And that's on game planning. You have to know that that's going to be what Oklahoma does best and what they're going to use to try and seal the game. And then that was OU up seven, right? With right, the ball. That, and that was kind of their dagger touchdown to make it a two possession game. And you're right, Joe. Everybody in the stadium knew they were running the football. And what, two running plays, and they're all the way inside the 10 yard line. Mm hmm. Uh, it's schematic advantage, and they just got worked up front. There's there's no doubt about that. Man, and I, honestly, I didn't think Lincoln Riley called that great of a game by his standards, and Jalen Hurts didn't play a great game. Now, maybe he got exposed a little bit as a thrower of the football. I think he's better than what he showed on Saturday, but we all knew Jalen Hurts' strength is his ability to take off and run, and yet inexplic- inexplicably Texas didn't have a spy on him seemingly all game. That, to me, makes no sense Jalen Hurst, the leading rusher for Oklahoma, what, 17 carries for a buck, 31, and a touchdown. And throwing the football, he wasn't great, made a couple of bad decisions. One of them, he didn't slide after he took off and ran, but obviously the interception he threw in the end zone. Like Texas had some things kind of working in their way, and they still just couldn't do enough to beat this Oklahoma team. I didn't think Oklahoma played nearly to their potential, and Texas just played so bad they couldn't win. And I guess that's why we're sitting here saying it's a miracle this was only a seven-point football game because it felt like it could have been a whole hell of a lot worse, man. Exactly. And then to throw every, you know, aside all the issues of that game, there's another issue that's going to carry over into the next game with with Malcolm Roach, yep. your leader on defense. You're, you're probably one of your best defensive linemen, if not your best defensive lineman. He's going to have to miss the first half of the Kansas game because he did target. I mean, he led with his head. He was going low, but he did lead with his head. But I do kind of wonder, when was the last time you saw a receiver slide to avoid contact in the open field? I don't know if I blame Malcolm Roach so much for that play. I know it was enforcement of the rule, 
Um, man, rules. Speaking of that, we have to go back to the pregame stuff at some point. Oh, right. But you're also the, the issues from this game are now becoming issues in games going forward because a wide receiver slid, and I have never seen that before. Well, it happened with uh, the Saints against your Texans, man, when Ted Ginn Jr. kind of gave ah. himself up. You usually only see it in clock management situations. You don't see it in the third quarter like you saw from C.D. Lamb, but I, don't know, I guess he saw Malcolm Roach coming, and, you know, Malcolm Roach, guy's an idiot. You're supposed to assume that he's going to slide. How do you not? No, being sarcastic, obviously. <laughs> but I think that was a huge play for a couple of reasons, Joe. Number one, it got Malcolm Roach ejected, one of the captains, one of the best players on this Texas defense. Number two, two plays later was the flea flicker in which C.D. Lamb broke a couple of tackles. There were five Longhorns within arm's length with a chance to tackle him, and no one really got a finger on him. I wonder if they thought C.D. Lamb was going to slide right there and give himself up like he had just had two plays ago. Now, you can't assume, totally being sarcastic, you can't assume that. You have to tackle the guy. You play until the whistle's dead. But that was kind of a double whammy, I think, by C.D. Lamb. Maybe a little smarter than we give him credit for. He balled out on Saturday, though. Three touchdowns. That guy is as complete as any wide receiver is in college football. Uh, glad you don't have to see that guy again until hopefully December. But, uh, man, he's he's as good as it gets right there. What about the special teams, Joe? We didn't even talk about that yet. I mean, Devin Duvernay has been, you know, outside of Sam Elliger, maybe Sam Cosme, that's sort of your big three in terms of offensive MVPs, your best players on that side of the ball through six weeks. But, man, he had a devil of a time mm. trying to handle kickoff return duties uh, on Saturday. I mean, misplaying a fair catch. That's bad. Luck. On a kickoff in the rule, it's a very weird rule where you don't get the ball at the 25. You have to play it where you muff the fair catch. So you got it at the five. Uh, Duvernay also fielded an OU kickoff that was probably going to bounce out of bounds. It would have been an illegal procedure penalty, but he fielded it. That didn't work. Duvernay returned a kickoff with no timeouts right before the half when Texas could have used a a few more seconds. Every time he seemingly took the ball out, he didn't get to the 25-yard line. And there was actually a fake sarcastic mock mm-hmm. cheer in the stands at the Cotton Bowl from the Texas side when he did in the second half finally kneel down a touchback on a kickoff. He just had a tough time in special teams in general outside of a couple of Dicker the Kicker field goals. Not a great performance on Saturday. Yeah, and I know people may look at Derek Wareheim's title as special teams coordinator, but that is, that is a title. The special teams I, I really feel like is run mostly by guys on the support staff, and they did not. Uh, control the quality. Their quality control coaches, that quality was definitely not controlled on Saturday. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, these. I understand you, you want your best player on offense to try and be able to make a play in a game where if you break something, then bam, bam momentum and all that stuff. But there's a reason that football is moving towards these rules around kickoffs. They're They're giving you 25 yards. It's okay to take those 25 yards, and I think – you know, you saw that with the fair catch. It's just it didn't work out that way, yep. and he dropped it. But you know, no matter no matter what, and and I, you know, you have to appreciate Sean Jamison's great American hero touchdown uh, kickoff return in the Rice game that sealed the cover. You have <laughs> right? to, but it, it, but you still, I oh, not playing that punt right in the game. Sure, I I just still feel like take the twenty five yards. I no matter what happens. Even if he gets it 40 yards, even if he gets it 50 yards, if, if you have these kickers, and I understand OU had a different kicker, but you saw he was getting it at least halfway through the end zone, five yards deep, why run 30 yards when you can just walk 30 yards and not have to worry about being tackled or playing the ball the wrong way? So even despite all, all those mistakes, just the overarching point I feel like in general should be, why don't you just fair catch it? Yeah, I mean – Special teams, this is the second time in conference play. We've talked about this. Nearly cost the Horns against Oklahoma State with a couple of muffed punts a few weeks ago. And this was just more bad situational football than anything. But too often, Texas was starting drives inside its own 25-yard line. I think that was a big difference in the game and why Texas couldn't really get anything going, especially in the first half on offense. They were starting every drive seemingly inside their own 20- or 15-yard line. Even the two turnovers, you're never going to complain about a turnover, but they happened deep in the red zone. Like Oklahoma marched down the field so far that even when Texas was able to create takeaways, they didn't get the benefit of short fields. just almost feels like special teams has been neglected at practice over the last couple of weeks, which 
mean, that's inexcusable. That, that could come back to bite Texas if they don't get some of those issues taken care of. So how do we bring this back to be a little, a little bit more positive? Do we emphasize that it was only a, a seven-point game, or do we just look ahead and see that the Kansas Jayhawks are coming to Austin this week? Where, where is the, what, where's the sunshine in this very, very cloudy day? I don't know if it shines. I know Tom Herman opened up his Monday press conference by saying the sun came up, but I don't know if it really does. I mean, the only optimism you have is that you can potentially play Oklahoma again and hopefully have a much better performance against the Sooners in December. But uh, look, your your chances of making the Final Four, which you and I, I don't think, ever saw that as very realistic, but hell, I mean, you still had a chance to mm-hmm. make the college football playoff if you take care of business. That's obviously out the window with your second loss. You lose to your biggest rival in a game in which you're the home team when you're hosting the recruits, and you just had a pretty lethargic performance. Now, once again, you're through your two toughest games of the season. You've played LSU and Oklahoma. Now, you went 0-2 against them, but you still have the opportunity to win the conference championship, which is something that's evaded this football program for about a decade but there's not a whole lot from what I saw on Saturday that makes me feel good about Texas moving forward. Now, I still think Texas is a really good football team, and I still think they're better than every team that they have on their schedule left during the regular season. Sure, the game in Waco is going to be tough. The game in Ames is going to be tough. Maybe the game in Fort Worth next weekend is going to be tough because it's Gary Patterson, and he generally does pretty well against Texas. But I don't know if Longhorn fans are going to be super ecstatic with anything that happens the rest of the way in the regular season. If you're a head coach, if you're a quarterback, if you're a player on this football team, your legacy is determined by what you do in big games and how you play against your biggest rival. And Texas is 0-2 in their big games this year until right now. So they obviously have the chance potentially in December. You've got to focus on Kansas and hopefully going undefeated you maybe can afford one loss in the second half of Big 12 Conference play and still get to Jerry World at the end of the year. But, uh, man, I, there's not a whole lot I can take and, and try to be real positive with, with what we saw on Saturday because we saw issues from offense, defense, and special teams against the Sooners. Maybe it's just one of those things where now you know what you have to do and it's yeah. just win out or become as close to it as you possibly can. So, I, uh, for a seven-point deep you know, disheartening loss to your biggest rival. I think we've we've got enough about that. But let's let's start talking about the real ray of sunshine in the city of Austin What's emanating that? from the Frank Irwin Center. Oh. And that is Come on, Texas man. men's basketball in college hoops in, in the, October. In the Big Twelve Well, when the Big Twelve announces all their preseason awards, it's time to talk a little bit about that. Tom Herman's goal is to go one and oh every day. I'm sure Shaka Smart has the same goal for every Every game he plays, and right now he has one Big 12 honorable mention player on his team in Matt Coleman, his point guard, his guy, and that's it for Texas. Not even They didn't get the freshman of the year. That went to Oscar Shibwe, I believe, from uh, the Congo. Uh, the newcomer of the year went to Chris Clark. I think he's a, Juco, or he's a transfer from Virginia Tech, and then preseason player of the year, Udoka Azubuke, big doke up in Lawrence, manning it in the middle up there. Guy who we remember pushed around, I think, all of Jared Allen, Mo Bamba, and Jackson Hayes. Uh, this is going to probably be Kansas year, but you know, looking at the, the landscape of the Big 12, looking at the landscape of Texas, who's number two? That seems to be the big question this year. It's always kind of it's a safe bet to bet on the Jayhawks to win the conference. I know the streak ended last year. But who is number two right now in the Big 12? That's a good question. Now, going into last year, people were asking that. Who's going to be number two behind Kansas? And Kansas ended up being number three as you had a tie between Texas Tech and Kansas State uh, atop the Big 12 conference. Look, Chris Beard, I'm inclined to give that dude the benefit of the doubt just because he's done a phenomenal job in only two years in Lubbock, obviously leading the Red Raiders to the national championship game a season ago, but Texas Tech lost a lot, man. Mm -hmm. I mean, they lost a lot from last year's Final Four team. They actually played a charity exhibition game against UTEP last weekend, and they lost to UTEP. And UTEP is not the Texas Western teams (laughs) of the mid-50s. These are – this is not a good team from El Paso. And I I can't remember if we've heard of preseason charity games or secret scrimmages before that have – concerned uh 
you know certain programs and certain fan bases. But it's it's odd that you know Texas Tech is in this odd spot. The Athletic uh, CJ Moore put out an article today. It's the official unofficial Big Twelve preseason media poll, and he had a bunch of different media members from who covered the Big Twelve: Brian Davis from the Statesman, Dustin oh, nice. McComas from Orange Bloods. Uh, Kansas State's Go Power Cat Riley Gates, Kellis Robinette, who works for the Kansas City Star, C.J. Moore for The Athletic, Randy Peterson, Des Moines Register, Travis Hines, Ames Tribune, Drew Davison, Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Joe Masato, The Oklahoman, Justin Jackson, Dominion Post, Tom Bragg, Charleston Gazette Mail, Carlos Silver, Lubbock Avalanche Journal, and my favorite, Coach Fran, Fran Fischilla from ESPN, helped him out. And all those media members put Texas Tech ninth. All of them? In conference. Oh, just well, their overall. The, uh, the high position okay. for Texas Tech was two. The low was number nine. But the unofficial official media poll put on by The Athletic has Texas Tech ninth in at least C.J. Moore's preseason predictions. The The poll had Texas Tech third, okay. just in front of Texas at fourth. The C.J. Moore's prediction for Texas had them third. Uh, this is going to be a weird year in the Big 12. Every year is a weird year in the Big 12. Every year is a grind. But Last year was actually a weird year because Kansas didn't win <laughs> for the first time in seemingly our entire lives, Joe. I mean, there's always weird stuff that generally happens beyond number one, but number one is usually set in stone. Last year, we had Texas Tech and Kansas State finish above KU. This year, KU should be the favorite. They've got a lot of talent coming back. They've got some highly touted recruits coming in. Uh, they get Azabuki back from injury last year. He's the preseason conference player of the year, as you mentioned. And I'll tell you what, this is going to be the most motivated Kansas team that we maybe have ever seen <laughs> because this might be Kansas's last year before the NCAA starts to levy some sanctions on this basketball program. Before they wheel the exotic dancing poles <laughs> back into storage. Like Even if Kansas, who knows, if Kansas makes the Final Four, if they win the national title this year, which they're going to open up as a top-five team in the AP poll, no doubt about that, uh, it might end up being vacated in a couple of years. Who knows? But I think a lot of folks around Kansas, there's people who think this might be Bill Self's last year. Like He might either get fired or just abandon ship because he doesn't want to deal with what comes down from the FBI investigation and the NCAA. So KU's going to be extra motivated. They've got more talent than anybody in this league. But yeah, after that, it's kind of a crapshoot. I mean, Texas Tech lost so much from last year's team. They still got some players. Uh, Davide Moretti mm-hmm. is back. That guy came on strong. I like Chris Clark, who you mentioned, the transfer. Uh, Jamius Ramsey from Duncanville, one of the best. He's the best Texas Tech basketball recruit they've ever had. That guy's going to be a stud. Uh, Baylor, always with Scott Drew. They're always in the mix. Tristan Clark, probably their best player. He's a preseason All-Big 12 guy as well. You can never count out a Scott Drew coach team. Uh, Iowa State, they're always right around the mix as well. Kansas State's always there. So, yeah, it feels like Kansas is the safe and obvious choice to finish atop the Big 12. But you're right. I mean, in football, it's like Texas and OU or OU and Texas before the year. It's like, okay, those are 1-2. Then it's kind of a crapshoot from 3 through 9, and then Kansas is going to be number 10. In basketball, it's almost less certain. It's like, yeah, Kansas is probably number 1. But we don't really know who number two is going to be. Texas has a shot to be in that conversation. I'm not going to th- pick the Longhorns to finish that high as long as Shaka Smart is still their coach. Uh, this is probably the least talented Texas team that's been there in the Shaka Smart era. Now, there's still some talented players on this team. There's some guys coming back. But there's not like a one-and-done player that we've seen from Texas teams in the past. I, I don't know what to expect from the Longhorns. I'd like to think this will be a tournament team this year. But in this Big 12, I'm not I'm not picking them number two. I'll pick them somewhere in the middle, maybe the four through seven-ish range mm. in 2019-2020. The big juxtaposition, I guess, for this season is Shaka Smart's history of not winning a single tournament game at Texas versus having the best staff he's ever compiled with Luke Yoklich, Neil Berry, uh, Jay Lucas, and himself. You know, those are guys who get basketball. Uh it's it's all the history versus you know the positives that could come from having that staff from having experienced players from ha- not having to rely on a one and done freshman just who just got to campus to basically carry the team 
Uh, you've got Courtney Ramey. you got Matt Coleman, who we mentioned. You probably have Andrew Jones back, uh, or not probably as if his health's up in, for any uh, debate right now, but you, you, you're you just not sure what Andrew Jones basketball player you're going to get. Right. Jace Febris has to show that he can have multiple facets to his game, and then you really have to wonder – What's Jericho Sims going to offer you? What does Will Baker even offer you this year? Uh, how does Kameka Hepa, you know, become a better player? Become a you know a, a guy who can threaten both in and out. Maybe not with a physical style of play, but with you know just an in and out game at six nine and with a shooting stroke. So, the the big debate this year, the big question is how does Shaka Smart outperform his previous results? He's finally got some stability in this backcourt with Matt Coleman, who you mentioned an honorable mention in the preseason Big 12, Courtney Ramey, Jace Febris. Like, there's finally some stability there, some guys that you think you could rely on. They just need to hit shots, man. Yep. It's as simple as that. I mean, this team, when they ran to the NIT championship and won the NIT at Madison Square Garden, they finally were hitting their threes, and you saw, okay, this can be a decent basketball team. Now, I am the last person in the world who's going to give them credit for winning the NIT. This isn't the NIT of the 70s and the 80s. This is the everyone gets a trophy, like our podcast channel. Oh, sorry, you weren't one of the best 700 teams that make the actual tournament. We'll put you in this separate thing. I'm not going to give Texas a whole lot of credit for that run. But they did start to make some threes. They shot 39-plus percent from downtown in that NIT run. If they can just be 36-37% this year from downtown... I think they've got a shot to be competitive in the Big 12, but there's just nothing I've seen from these guys who are all pretty highly touted recruits. A lot of them recruited as shooters. I don't know what happens. It's like there's a lid on the rims at the Irwin Center or something. So there were some pieces there, and we had this conversation last year going into the year because nobody knew how good Jericho Sims was going to be. Not Jericho Sims. Jackson Hayes. Jackson Hayes was going to be. Thank you. We were saying uh, – you know, Texas doesn't have an obvious lottery pick, so maybe this will be their best year. Turns out Jackson Hayes was a lottery pick when it was all said and done, but Texas had, I don't know, one of its worst years mm-hmm. under Shaka Smart with the uncertainty or the not obvious player to feed the ball to. So I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in this coaching staff. I agree. I think the Ocklich hire for Michigan was huge, but I, nothing I've seen from Shaka Smart in his four years at Texas gives me a whole lot of confidence that's, that this is going to be a team that competes for the conference championship. Can they make the tournament? Sure. I have higher aspirations and expectations for my basketball team than that, but it doesn't seem like the University of Texas and most of this fan base do. It's not football, so most people don't really care. No, you're right. It doesn't really seem like University of Texas cares at all what's going on with its basketball because I think we're giving it its – it's best promotion it's had in a while just yeah. by our own podcast. If you podcast. fired Charlie Strong for his performance, then you should have fired Shaka Smart by now. Like That's the most obvious thing right there to me that this program, this university, just doesn't care that much about basketball because Shaka Smart shouldn't be here for a fifth year if you ask me. I guess I'll eat my words if I'm wrong, but I've said that the last two years. Right. I haven't been wrong just yet. And there's no reason to, to doubt that. So. All right. Yes. Out of basketball, let's let's get to uh, something a lot more fun: losing money, and actually, <laughs> or should I say, investing. We uh, always it's only gambling when you lose, Joe. But on this podcast, it's it's been gambling because we've lost. What is what's what do you have down as your lock of the week for this week? You've got the stat that's going to help me with this one. I'm going to go with Penn State in the whiteout game at Happy Valley. They are nine point favorites against Michigan. I get it. Michigan's a top twenty team. They're going to have something to prove. They still have hopes to win the Big Ten this year. But, man, I was pretty not bought in on Penn State before the year. They look really, really good. And Michigan in big games is terrible. Nine points is a lot for a ranked-v-ranked matchup, but I'm going to go with Penn State at home minus nine. Michigan's probably going to fumble again. Their offense is probably going to look pretty bad again. Don Brown's defense is going to probably have its man coverage busted again and again and again. But that stat you mentioned, I uh, I think this is what inspired you to make this pick. And this is from a friend, uh, Matt Freeman, at Irish Sports Daily. On the road versus ranked opponents in the last 20 games, the Michigan Wolverines are 1-19. The last time they won was last year at Michigan State, part of their revenge tour, where yep. they completely just dominated. I remember Donovan Peoples-Jones had a big catch. Uh, that defense just shut down. Michigan State completely 21-7 covered, which was nice for me. Not nice but, for me. But straight up, Michigan is one in nineteen against is one in nineteen in its last 
20 ranked road games or 20 games on the road against ranked teams and 5 and 15 against the spread. So I think picking the Nittany Lions, despite the flaws it may have, uh, they do not have the same flaws that Michigan has. My lock of the week is not as high profile, um, but I think you know the money you win is the same money whether it was one versus two. U of H at UConn. I know that U of H and Dana Holgerson's going through some strange off-the-field problems right now with regards to red shirting or as some people have put it tanking but can or excuse me UConn should not be a D1 team they are (laughs) they had a historically awful defense last year to where offense is playing them basically average to first down to play and it has not improved that much Randy Edsel's still getting some bonus checks for winning at halftime or something silly like that but Despite all the problems U of H has, 22 is going to be an easy cover for them at UConn. U of H at UConn. I like it. Hopefully you took the Washington Mystics over the Connecticut Sun WNBA Finals. That was a lot. Tense moments for me as that series went to a fifth game, and the Mystics were heavy favorites, but they got it done. You weren't in on that? I, I'm speechless. <laughs> as you should be. What about baseball? Are you confident in your Strohs? They're up 2-1, so we won't go game-by-game game predictions because – you know, who knows when you're going to listen to this, but Strohs over the Yankees, and would you feel good about uh, a national series as we know the Nats are representing the National League? I, I, you know, we always make this, this kind of seems like a sports talk cliche, but like whoever wins this is going to win the World Series. I really think that that's the case. Nationals are a great story. They've got Strasburg. They've got Scherzer, but I don't think they have the bats up and down the lineup like either of the two teams in the AL have right now. As far as the Astros go, I've feel very confident in the Astros taking it so long as Grinky has a game kind of up to his regular season standards where he's not shuffling and being pulled after three and two thirds. If, if that happens, I feel like the Astros have a great chance because then, you know, the, the Yankees will have to make their comeback against Garrett Cole and against Justin Verlander. But if, you know, with all this weather going on and all these changes, four straight games. It's going to put a tax on both managers, Aaron Boone and A.J. Hinch. But to me, it really comes down to if, if Grinky can right himself and become the Grinky that the Astros traded for, the Astros wanted on this team, it's going to be incredibly difficult for the Yankees to beat all three of those guys and get all get past all three of those guys for the four games I need to take the series. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. All right, before we get out of here, Joe – Not a lot of people have been dying to hear about Kansas football and about this Texas KU game that's coming up at DKR on Saturday night, but we have to at least give a prediction. If you do have any KU football questions, I'll be happy to answer them on Twitter at Brad Kellner. Hit me up. I think I'm the only person in the world who's watched all six Texas and Kansas football games this year, so if you have any questions, obviously let me know, but we're not going to break them down too much. Texas, a 21-and-a-half-point favorite. What I'm looking at right now, Longhorns should take care of business. How easy do you think it is? What do you think the final score is going to be against the Jayhawks? So I know since that game in uh, 2016, Texas has been in either one or two possession games with the Jayhawks. I believe Tom Herman's first year when when Kansas traveled to Austin, they only won. I think they won 45. 27 or something like that. It was a 15-point game. 42-27. 42-27. So a 15-point, two-possession game at home in Austin against Kansas. Wasn't particularly confidence-inspiring in, in Tom Herman's first year, but it was a win and one of the seven that they got. Last year, with a Big 12 title appearance on the line, they only win by seven in Lawrence on the day after Thanksgiving. You know, no place more beautiful than Lawrence, Kansas on the day after yeah, Thanksgiving. Baby. Uh, I really don't think that that continues. Although I will credit Les Miles for for making the change from Les Canning to the current offensive coordinator, the NAIA RPO whiz. That's yep. that's the type of hire that Miles should have made originally in order to b- boost his chances of succeeding at at Kansas instead of going with Les Canning. But I don't think it'll be enough. This is one of those games where you're you leverage the advantage you have of, of being at home. Uh, you leverage the advantage you have of Kansas's offense still being run by either, what, Nathan McVitie or Carter Stanley? Carter Stanley, yeah. Right, the two guys who really aren't that good. No. 
No, you no, just no. have to guard Puka. I, I, that seems so simple and so straightforward, but that that really seems like all you have to do. He's the most electric guy on their team. He, he you know he could probably play for any Power Five program, and he's probably be pretty darn good at every any Power Five program as long as you can stop him and make Kansas's quarterbacks have to do things. Despite all these issues with the defense, I feel like that's a place where they can do fine, and then they should probably run over Hassan defense and the rest of the Kansas defense. Yeah, I think Texas covers, and, and the Longhorns since 2017-2 and two in the game after Oklahoma, and those are generally blowouts too. So, yeah, Kansas is not very good. Curious to see what their offense looks like. Maybe that's the one thing that gives me pause if I'm a Texas fan is – you know, new offense that KU is going to trot out there. What is it going to bring? But they had a bye week last week. Two weeks is not long enough to instill an entirely new offense, which is what Kansas is trying to do midseason. I've got Texas, and I think they'll cover the 21 points relatively easily. All right, that's going to do it for us. Thank you all for listening and putting up with my sickness. I sound terrible. Hopefully you've made it this far. If you have, congratulations to you. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Joe is at josephcook89. I am at Brad Kellner. And send us an email to everyone, that's the number one, gets a trophy at gmail.com. Comments, questions, concerns, feedback, whatever is on your mind, please like and share and rate this podcast if you would be so kind. We prefer five stars if you would do so. Want to give one more shout out to our sponsors, AV Consultations, avconsultations.com, and also Altstat Beer. Anything else, Joe? Have I hit everything we need to hit? I think you covered it all. All right. Good stuff, my man. Good stuff, my man. Thank you all so much for listening. Always appreciate the support. Check out the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast as well with Paul Wadlington and Kevin Dunn. And uh, we will be back next week to recap Kansas and preview some TCU, get to some of the other sports happenings from around the world. Thanks so much for listening. Y'all have a great night. Hook them.